I first and foremost try to avoid the hero complex, right? Coming in thinking like, I know all the answers. Coming in thinking I'm going to save the day. And I think as being a leader, it's important to be humble and you don't need to be the smartest person in the room, right? But surround yourself with smart people. And so in a resuscitation bay, when we're at a loss of like, what are the priorities? People learn different things, right? At different times because of their vantage point and trying to ask and create a an environment of psychological safety is critical in bringing people's point of views or ideas. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Brian Yoon, and in addition to being a board-certified emergency physician, Dr. Yoon holds not only an MD but an MBA and an MPH, and he serves as the Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Boston Medical Center. In that role, he oversees the clinical operations of the emergency department, which sees about 130,000 patients every year. We talk a lot in this episode about clinical operations and what it is, but we also talk about choice architecture, building psychological safety, and creating systems that really support individuals and performance under pressure. Now, since Brian is also relatively new with this role, we talk a ton about what it's like to be the new kid on the block in a high-functioning organization and what it takes to really invest in and honestly invest yourself in a high-performing culture. Before we jump into it, a reminder, if you haven't already, to check out our book. It's called Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. You can ask for it at your local bookstore, you can find it on Amazon, or you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. If you already have a copy, please think about leaving us a review. It's a huge help for us to get the word out there about what we're trying to do with the Emergency Mind Project. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's great to talk to you again and just welcome aboard. Thanks, Dan. I'm honored to be here and it's good to see you again. It's been a while. Absolutely. For folks that don't know you as well and that aren't as lucky as I am to get to work with you in the past, uh, what's your story these days? What's your elevator pitch? Who are you and what are you up to? Yeah. So I'm an emergency physician, first and foremost, and my title is the vice chair for clinical affairs at Boston Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. My role primarily is centered around clinical operations. How do we make it easier for people to do the right thing? How do we get patient care started as soon as possible in a safe, efficient, and a consistent manner? And it's really a group effort in order to do that, working with our nurse colleagues, our administrative colleagues, the physicians, the APPs, the residents, and the support staff. I'd say that as I'm three weeks in, and uh, it's been a hell of a ride. Uh, it's like drinking from a fire hose or a waterfall, a nice cold waterfall, but everyone's been so warm. <laughs> and so it, it counteracts very nicely. Oh, that's awesome, man. I know a lot of us that are operating out on sort of the front line right now are like clinical operations is even more important for us lately than it than it normally has been given the the scope of the task that we're facing. But but what is it? What defines clinical operations? Like when you think about that, like what's the scope of what you try to do? Yeah. It's really there's really three parts to it as we think about clinical operations. It's the input, the throughput, and the output. And then within that. We also talk about what's within our zone of influence, right? And certainly on the input side, many folks focus on walk-ins, sort of referrals, both from primary care or from other hospitals. And throughput, we talk about 
how do we get patients diagnosed, treated? But it, even within that, we're talking about, it's a multi-complex system, right? We're talking about radiology, we're talking about laboratory, things that are not necessarily within the zone of our control, but certainly within the zone of influence and we have to work together. And then on the output side, it's discharging, it's admitting patients, it's hospitalizing patients. And in the clinical operations world, it's taking all those pieces, putting it together and trying to make it run efficiently and, and safely. And at the end of the day, delivering care and achieving the thing that matters the most to patients. And um, we may not always achieve it, but certainly we want to address it. Wait, wait, what is that? You left me hanging there. What's the thing that matters most to patients? It depends on every single patient, right? And people come in and they have expectations, right? And if we never, ever ask patients what matters most to you or what's the thing that worried you or if a symptom was going on for a week and then they decide to come in today, there usually is, is a trigger on why they decided today was the day within a week. If we miss the opportunity to ask, you know, what worries you, what scares you, then we're at risk of not meeting those expectations and failing at delivering the, the care that, that really the patient was looking for. Makes perfect sense. And what was it that got you into clinical operations to begin with? Like, when did you first, because I remember us working together in, a, in, you know, a couple of different emergency departments and, and thinking a lot and concentrating a lot on the room and the patient in front of us. And partly that's just because that's where I was in my development as an ER doctor, when we were training together, I was still focused on the individual person. You know, we, we, we tend to deploy this graduated responsibility scale where people, as they start training, start training, looking at one person, then maybe a couple people. And then sort of, they start growing to the fact where they're, they're managing a field, which is where clinical operations first starts really coming in. But, but when did you first say like, Hey, like I, this is something I care about. This is something I want to make a difference in. And I feel like I can make a difference in. I'll say that it was a journey. <laughs> and, and honestly, the, when I was first looking at my career, uh, I thought I was going to be an EMS physician. Uh, I was right, thinking right, I about that. Yeah. going to, you know, working with paramedics, going and uh, working in a helicopter. Uh, but really what, what, how I came to where I am right now is uh, mentorship, right? As you start exploring um, what, what does a career look like after residency, right? We sort of think about in we chunks of blocks of time. We think about, okay, med like college, four years, med school, four years, residency, uh, three to four years. And it's, it, it's important to look up and say, well, what's beyond the years of training. And as I was thinking about how do I apply my skills? What do I love about emergency medicine? How do I continue that providing me a variety. That's the, that's the key to happiness is variety. That's where clinical operations started to come to the surface. And it was around my second year of residency to my third year of residency, where I started looking into what does it mean to be a physician? What does it mean to be a physician leader? And through mentorship, that's where I decided, you know what, I'm, I need to dig into this deeper it is totally in the ethos of emergency medicine, right? It's like when we see a problem, we just want to fix it. And clinical operations is allows you, it gives you that opportunity to try to fix things, but on a, a system scale, uh, as opposed to on a specific patient to physician level. I love that. Let's press on that and sort of like run in that direction. Like when we think about the relationship between the systems and the person, how do we even start thinking about that? 
Like when you start looking at the systems that work in your universe, what tools, what vocabulary, what structure do you use to analyze that? And how does that relate to you, to the structure and vocabulary you use when you're in a room facing a single patient? At the end of the day, what we're looking at is capacity. Like what is our capacity to deliver care? And that's more of a systems way of looking at patients because when you're right in front of the patient, intuitively, it means you have capacity because you're caring for the patient. But then when you start putting in orders and you're, you're working with the nurse and you're ordering a CAT scan or ordering labs, then it's all about what's the capacity of those resources that you just acted upon. And as we think about systems and systems improvements, at the end of the day, what we're trying to align is capacity and making sure that if ever there's a mismatch between the, the, the demand and capacity, that's when you have weight. Right? And that's when patients are, uh, frustrations can start building. And, and that's where you both on the clinical side and the patient side, you start getting this mismatch of, of expectations. And so my role, my job is to get all those stakeholders, think about us, not just in silos, but a system level capacity. Most of the time when I'm in a room, I try to avoid operations or, or business speak as it were, because uh, it can come across as uh, overused, right? Like terms like synergy. So at the end of the day, what I try to think about is how do I bring in an anecdote to educate and provide context to what I'm trying to deliver at the bedside? Yeah, that's such an interesting challenge, right? Because like when you're in a resuscitation or when you're in an emergency, whether, you know, whether that's an emergency situation inside or outside the emergency department, right? Like you're thinking about the supply demand balances of the different resources you have to take care of this one person in front of you. And then you're also running in sort of a back corner of your mind, like the flow of those supply demand mismatches over the flow of what you view to be the whole field. And like mapping decisions that are maybe best for that person onto a whole other set of factors like scarce resources and flow through the department. I always talk when I have uh, med students rotating with me about how the one of the key components of emergency medicine is that we don't actually necessarily always try to do what's best for the person in front of us. Actually, we try to do what's best for the person in front of us within the context of also protecting the field and the community that we serve. And that's a really unique paired mission that we have. And I think it's probably worth pressing on that a little bit when we think about like how performance under pressure works, because it's not the same as if you are a pro golfer and all you really need to do is like successfully put a single ball into a single hole, which like no knock on that. I can't do that to save my life probably, but like that is a very different set of skills than balancing multiple completing levels and hierarchies of pressure and performance like that. What's the difference in how you leverage that hierarchical sort of relationship set when you're running a resuscitation versus when you're running an operations meeting versus sort of in between in in the course of your normal day? I will first off say that they're pretty similar in a sense that when I'm running an operations meeting and when I'm running a resuscitation, at the end of the day, I, I am trying to prioritize, right? There's only so much time we have in a meeting, right? We you sort of meetings get a bad connotation because you, people are wasting time. And so prioritizing and making sure that everyone is on the same page is important in any stressful situation, whether we're negotiating or bargaining and trying to understand where our colleagues are coming from, or even in, in a resuscitation bay, people may have different ideas, right? It's really, whether it's in a boardroom or in the resuscitation bay, people have different ideas. 
and it's important as when I'm running a resuscitation or when I'm running a meeting as the leader in an efficient manner, bring out those ideas because it's really those ideas that we can work upon and deliver really good care at the bedside or take what we did at the meeting and apply it to patients throughout the department. I'd say that one of the key things though in both is the importance of establishing relationships beforehand, right? And I'm three weeks in, and I will say about 80% of my time has been spent just meeting people one-on-one. In a similar way, Dan, right? When you ran recitations or when I run resuscitations, the first thing I'll do in the trauma bay is introduce myself and ask everyone to introduce themselves because it's not the time when shit is hitting the fan that you're like trying to meet people for the first time, right? And we're all, we're humans and relationship is important when we're trying to do things. And just knowing someone's name gets you a long way, uh, whether you're in the boardroom or in a resuscitation bay. Man, there's so there's so many cool directions to go with this. So let's, let's sort of pick and choose a little bit randomly here. So staying for a moment in the resuscitation bay, and, and I want to come back to relationship building in a second after that, but staying for a moment in the resuscitation bay, we use these hierarchical systems based on scarce resources. And that logic is the logic that underpins the ATLS algorithms and the ACLS algorithms, right? Airway breathing circulation. You have to have oxygen moving in orderly flow through your the universe of your body, just like you have to have resources moving in orderly flow through your emergency department. If you don't, then it doesn't really matter where you are downstream if you don't fix the upstream problems first. So sometimes we're very aware of that, right? There's a really well-established hierarchy, airway and then breathing and then circulation. Other times it's a little bit harder and we find ourselves in these situations where we're trying to decide what the most important problem is, right? Sometimes we say that as, what do we think the dominant hypothesis is in this crisis? What have you found in that circumstance? And how has that work changed for you over the years now that you spend more time thinking about systems and flow in general? Are there things you do differently when you're actually running the resuscitation? Yeah. I first and foremost try to avoid the hero complex, right? Coming in thinking like, I know all the answers. Coming in thinking, I'm going to save the day. And I think as being a leader, it's important to be humble. And you don't need to be the smartest person in the room, right? But surround yourself with smart people. And so in a resuscitation bay, when we're at a loss of like, what are the priorities? People learn different things, right? At different times because of their vantage point. And trying to ask and create a, an environment of psychological safety is critical in bringing people's point of views or ideas. I mean, just like an example, right? Is that a patient might come in super sick into the resuscitation bay and the resident may be helping to start leading the resuscitation. And a family member might come in and as the attending, I might start talking to the family member and gathering data and developing a a holistic picture of, of, of what happened. And certainly then I have that information And I need to share that with my resident who's running the resuscitation or else we can miss a critical piece of information. And in the the same way, when we're running resuscitations, the nurses and the techs and the CNAs, they they have pieces of information. And all that input is critical as we figure out, like, what are the priorities here? A very vivid memory of a case that I was running with a a mutual friend of ours, who's now a colleague of yours, Alex Shang, who um, (laughs) we were over in the Charlie pod in Brigham. And this person came in and they were 
just deathly sick. I mean, just like about to die at any second. We were running around trying to figure out what to do for them. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden somebody managed to find hidden in this person's clothes the fact that they had a certain disease, meaning that they really needed steroids. Like they had to get steroids right away or they were just going to keep dying. And the discovery of this piece of information, the distribution of that piece of information of knowledge into the shared mental model of the group, and then the acting on upon that new mental model brought this guy back to life in like this absolutely dramatic over-the-top fashion, which was kind of amazing. And I remember Dr. Shang leading that so skillfully as he sort of negotiated his way through those rapidly changing waters. And I was a really young buck at that point being like, whoa, that's incredible. How did you do that? And you know, just being overjoyed at this watch of it. But what you're saying is not, well, not usually that dramatic, right? Like very, very true all the time. Like these pieces of information come up and we have to distribute them. We have to get the team on the shared mental model about it. So you said, I want to avoid the hero complex. And you put that up as a foil to this idea. So what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of the hero complex that lets you leverage the knowledge of the room? When I figure out a term, I'll trademark it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. I'll say it's more that you're, you know, the phase one is that you're just an information gatherer, right? And at the same time, you're a facilitator, right? You're going to establish this psychological safety where information can be shared without people feeling scared or worried, right? You don't want to create a hierarchy where people are fearful of sharing that that critical piece of information. And importantly, ideas come up and it's important to acknowledge it. It may be relevant or may not be relevant, but if you shut it down, then the next time that person will never want to share that information. And so in scenarios where long-term relationships are important, you want to make sure that you're consistently encouraging people to feel comfortable to share their thoughts. Now, certainly in periods where it is a disaster and you're just shooting from the hip, right? That's important too, right? As a leader, when there's an emergency and you need to shoot from the hip and make a decisive decision, but at the same time, there's different phases, right? And perhaps the initial resuscitation might be a knee-jerk reaction, but it's, it's always important to like come back around and say, okay, let's open it up to suggestions and ideas and information sharing. And when you're going back and forth between those modes, right? This is something we talk about a lot in the Emergency Mind Project, the the idea that even though you're within the larger auspices of a crisis, not everything you do is actually an emergency. And the skills and tools that you need to deploy when it is, is different than the skills and tools you need to deploy in those moments right next to each other. Unless you're driving the ship, it might not be obvious to everybody exactly which moment you're in, right? So how do you do that? How do you explain to the team, you know, like, folks, we're head down here, we're doing this thing, we're shooting from the hip versus, hey, this is a collaborative inquiry time. I want everybody to really contribute. And how do you do that in a way that promotes that psychological safety like you're describing? Man, that's like a billion dollar question if you can figure out one really quick capsule. Yeah. I mean, what, what what I'll say is that I do this both in the resuscitation bay. And what I try to do is I try to share my understanding of the situation. And it's a summary, right? In the resuscitation bay, it'll be like, it's a 69-year-old male, female with diabetes and hypertension, and they came in with chest pressure, and then they collapsed. The EMS did X, Y, and Z. In the boardroom, it'll be, okay, radiology shared their understanding of X, Y, and Z. The laboratory shared their understanding of what happens in the process. 
And my understanding of that is this is the reason why this has been happening, right? Or in the resuscitation bay, I think they collapsed because they had a heart attack. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Are people understanding this differently? And so you are going out of limb saying, this is, these are my thoughts, but you're saying it in a way where you are truly inquisitive and an information gatherer and encouraging people to share their thoughts in terms of the process. And, and most importantly, uncover what are people's assumptions. We always talk about figure out what's known and what's unknown. And obviously the most difficult part is what you don't know, you don't know, which is right. It's sort of like Captain Obvious. You don't know what you don't know. But in my one-on-one interviews with folks, I am inviting and I just say, I don't know what I don't know. So like, please share with me. Don't assume that I know something in a similar way as you're navigating new systems. So, you know, three weeks in, I'm just trying to develop my roadmap. It's the investment that I'm trying to make so that we can be successful. With that, it'll help me in the resuscitation bay, but it'll also help me in a committee or in a conference. If we had our druthers, right? If we have exactly what we want, then we have the ability to spend time with our teammates and to train together in sort of a graduated environment. Some of that wedge sort of stuff we tend to talk about in the the project here, which is that we get together in low pressure times. We talk about how we're going to perform in high pressure times. We put ourselves under little bits of pressure. And then when we're like cooked and baked in, then we try to have some actual stuff going on. And that's awesome when that works that way. And that's also sometimes not at all how reality actually happens, right? Like, yep. you know, there's been times when I've started at a new hospital and my first case is a GCS 111 massive head injury where you have to intubate and run a trauma and nobody even knows who you are or why you're standing at the head of the bed. You're just like on your orientation shift, which is a true story. And, yep. uh, it, you know, I think we tend to talk about like ideal environments and also real environments, which are sometimes very different. So let's split this into two pieces for a second. Let's stay in this more idyllic world. So you're the new kid on the block. You're trying to really invest in these relationships and you're trying to do it consciously. You mentioned one of the things you do is asking about the unknown unknowns, which is, hey, I'm new here. I want to build good relationships. Here's what I think I understand. What do I not understand? What am I completely off base of? What else are you asking in those questions? And these are, again, just to put the structure in place firmly, these are conversations you're having in non-emergency environments to set up structures and operational systems that work well in and out of emergency environments. So what are you asking in those conversations? My favorite question to ask, and I'll credit this to my partner who, who, who suggested this. And the, the question that I like to ask is like, share with me, what are the landmines? You know, what are the landmines that you might've stepped in or you saw someone step on and, and just, just share with me so that I'm also prepared for success, right? And those landmines are, they're the person's perceptions, but that's important because you start getting insight into, you know, what are the hot button topics and in a way, it just opens up additional conversations about systems, things that, you know, what's broken, what's not broken. And again, coming in from a, you know, hey, I'm new. There's a honeymoon period where people are inviting and willing to share your thoughts. I think when you come from that point of view of, I'm trying to learn. I love that question. What are, what are the landmines that you see here that I might not realize? That's That's great. That's great. How do you think people can keep that sort of student learner's mindset going when they're 
five, 10 years into a field like that, into a job. Cause I, I hope that I'm still asking good open-ended sort of like deep knowledge questions like that, even though it's not my first day there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I think where, where it comes into play is that like, you also need to pay it forward. Right. So like when you're at an institution, people will come and go. And it's also an opportunity for you to help new people. And as you develop that, that knowledge, that institutional knowledge to make sure you share it with others. So one, that conversation will be important because now that person will be appreciative of, of what you've shared. And now you continue in this relationship because that, that person certainly it may be in a position where they can help you in, in the future. And so it's not a one and done, right? Think of this as like long-term relationships. And I think two here is that it's really the maintenance of those relationships. Um, when we're talking about long-term the first time you ask someone, ideally, the first time you ask someone for something, it shouldn't be the first time you meet them, ideally, right? Works out so much easier if you've at least had a face-to-face and showed that you're on the same page and you, you both want to try to do the same thing. Well, people disagree, totally. We all respond to different incentives and, and potentially different bosses. But at the very least, if you're joining a new organization, if you're joining a new group, investing in that early time, those first 90 days, as it were, will pay dividends. I'll even challenge you if, you, if you're even going from one position to a promotion within your own organization, that you shouldn't assume that you know all the key players. It, perhaps in a small office, you may, but it may be that you're now connecting with outside stakeholders, right? And you should be doing this also at, at the same time so that you're not putting yourself in a situation where you assume you know everything. You know, it, it's great. We train to in the middle of a resuscitation right before we take a critical action, almost sometimes before a timeout or before an intubation say, to say, okay, this is the dominant model. Person is having respiratory failure. We're going to put a breathing tube in. We train that next question very carefully, right? That next question be, we're going to put a breathing tube in. Does anybody see anything I don't? Right? Because we know we don't have the whole picture. We look around and we assume that there might be other vantage points that, that are going to allow us to build a better picture of reality. And it's interesting to see you employing that same question on this very different scale and very different tact, essentially asking, what do I not see when I walk into this room? And what do you see from your, your time here? That's really cool. I like that a lot. <laughs> I'm glad you're using that too, Dan. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, geez, you probably taught me that actually now that I think about it. But... Or we trained on that together, you know, yeah. at, in somewhere along our training arc. Okay, but but let's shift gears to the other half of that question. So, what about when you don't have that? What about when you don't have the time to put into that pre-work the way that you want it to be done? And maybe you're starting off a new thing, and and the demands on you are such that you have to be running immediately. Maybe you're coming from the outside into an organization that's already up and running, and you need to be able to, you know, sort of find your place in the line and get going immediately. Or maybe as an extreme example, you're in you're in what we call a swarm team or an X team, where you come together for a particular purpose. None of you have ever worked together before, and the emergency is hot and running, and you have to go right away. What do you do in those moments? How do you create interpersonal relationships in a way that matter? And how do you like sort of flash build systems that can help you work? In those situations where you literally are like life-saving, you just need to do it. The time to do it then is if you're when you're debriefing, right? Mm. So you, you deal with it and it may just be a disaster, right? Or it may be that you're just brute force trying to fix the problem. But at the very end, as again, as a leader, 
It is making sure that there's a time to debrief because it'll be important to then establish that. Again, these are what we're talking about are relationships, right? Uh, that you're, you're going to be working with people again. You're going to work with working with these people again. And the debrief is an opportunity to say, how did people feel like that went, right? Tell me one thing that we did well. Tell me another thing where we could have done better or improved upon. And then making sure that we all introduce ourselves. So that, that's what happens in resuscitation bay, right? It may be like we're signing out on the shift and we haven't had the opportunity to introduce ourselves to, to the team. And then we resuscitate the patient. And then afterwards, oftentimes we just scatter and go do our own thing. But that's an opportunity there to, to center ourselves and debrief right then and there and, and learn from that, that incident. In the boardroom, it tends to be, or the, in a conference room, it tends to be less dramatic than that, right? It's usually not like, we need to meet right now and, and, and solve this problem. Uh, usually in, the, in a boardroom or, or a conference room, you will have had the opportunity to like invest in, and, and meet people and, and say hi before that meeting happens. There's a really important, I think, implicit lesson in what you just said, right? Which is that if you are not forced to act, if this isn't an actual swarm team, if this isn't an actual life or death crisis, put the time and energy and investment into building the relationships before you get moving. I think we tend to, all of us, even us ER doctors, tend to make dramatic things more dramatic. We tend to believe things are more of emergencies than they really are. We tend to slot ourselves into these situations where we got to go, go, go. And in reality, most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, we really can take a step back, take the extra moment at the beginning, build the culture, and then move forward together with that culture slightly more in place. I guess I'm interested in those moments too. So what about something in the middle? It's not life or death. Nobody's coding, right? But there's a ton of urgency. What do you do in those moments? How do you slow the team down and try to invest some of this rich culture building sort of systems that you've been developing in, into those moments? I'd say in those like medium urgency situations. <laughs> and so we'll sort of come out of the resuscitation bay, right? And we'll, we'll talk about in the bay, for example, or in the, in the medical bay. And when we're talking to a patient, we're introducing ourselves to the patient, right? The best case scenario is a nurse is there with you. And it's also an opportunity for the nurse to introduce themselves to the patient. And that right there is the perfect scenario to establish trust with the patient and establish trust between the patient and the care team, right? And it could be that this is, you know, this is Brian, he'll be your nurse and he's fantastic, right? Or I'm the doctor and I'm going to be working with this nurse and I'm working with this tech. And implicitly you're establishing a connection between the care team. Things are easier when it feels like you're all on the same page and you're working towards a goal together. And so even if it's not this explicit, like, hi, I'm Brian, nice to meet you. We're going to be working together. Taking the moment at the bedside, establishing those connections is critical. I will say it goes a long way to learn people's names. It goes a long way in the emergency department or at work to also importantly, understand little things about people, right? And so when you see them, you could be like, hi, how is that person doing? You'd be surprised. People comment on, wow, it was really nice that this person said hello. We get caught up in the minute to minute, the hour to hour, and we just come in, do our work and we leave. But those are missed opportunities to invest in these long-term relationships. I love that. It's tempting if you're new at this to 
discount everything you just said as usable only for people that have more time and less responsibility. And I say that because I remember having that thought, right? When I, when I was sort of a junior resident being like, oh, you know, like I'm watching you, I'm watching other people that are, that are ahead of me taking like these moments to like talk to the team and talk to the environmental services staff about how they're doing and to sort of like structure a lot of these different points of human contact and me being like, yo, yo, I got stuff to do here. Let's go. Right. Like, why are we doing this? And you're just missing the point. If you're thinking about it that way, I was missing the point when I was thinking about it that way. And I'm so much stronger and better able to do my work, to perform under pressure when I have the strong culture and strong systems around me that support me and allow me to do that. I mean, if you think about it, just take a moment and, you know, we sort of talk about like being a fourth year resident is easier than being an intern. Inherently, like, yeah, medicine is, is complex. Medicine is, it takes a long time to, to learn it, uh, but there are always resources available. You have an attending, you have like so much foam and electronic resources at, at your fingertip. But what actually makes it easier, right? When you're a fourth year versus an intern is you've learned the system. You've learned people's names. You've learned the consultants' names. And now, you know, in your data bank, you know who to go to when you're trying to solve these issues. When, when you're an, an intern, you don't have any of that knowledge. And so, yes, you're trying to learn the medicine, but you're really trying to establish those relationships. You're trying to establish how things work. And it takes time. But once you have done it, you're like, okay, I've gotten into some rhythm. That's anytime you're, you're going to a new company or you're, you have a promotion, we tend to like learn on the go. But really, it's an opportunity to like do a fast pass or an easy pass and, and try to be critical establishing those relationships early and, and making the journey easier, right? It's like you have an issue. I know that surgeon attending's name. I could just go to that person to ask for help. Whereas before, you're like, I, I don't know who's who and, and I don't know who to go to help. And, and that, that's that like uncomfortable feeling that we all have when we're, we're interns, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it strikes me as we're saying this, that you know we talk so much in the Emergency Mind Project about this cycle of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve. And a lot of the times when we're talking about it, we're talking about it on the internal landscape sense. Like I am preparing my own body and mind to perform, then I come home and then I learn. And you're also sort of saying it here on a different sort of scale of the course of a team and a community as we do this, right? Which is that we know we will be called upon to do hard things, we will prepare for that by building culture, by consciously creating relationships between ourselves. We will perform in a certain way, and then it will come out of that room. And part of our recovery and evolution is really rebuilding that culture, looking at what we had and trying to say, okay, what can we do better about this? And the more skilled we are as a collective and a team at running that cycle, the better, stronger, more resilient, more emergency-capable culture we're able to build and the better individual decisions we can make as it comes all the way through input, throughput, and output through our system. Yeah, that's exactly right. I acknowledge it's hard to do, right? When you're just trying to establish yourself, but it'll pay dividends if you take a conscious effort to do so. Brian, as you've been getting more and more into this, and as you're carving out your new space here, what landmines do I not understand as I'm walking into this space of building culture? <laughs> The most important thing here, uh, as you're trying to figure out what are the relationships you're going to form, is to be as inclusive as possible. I think that, and honestly, like I, I almost tripped up on that myself. Uh, honestly, it was like, 
I'm so busy. I might not need to meet with this group of people, but I'm glad I did because that information that they've shared, I've been able to then bring that into my subsequent interviews and, and just understand, you know, where are people coming from? What are the incentives that people are responding to? And, you know, the, these meetings are 30 minutes. You know, I think we're, we're all worried that like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to be in meeting after meeting, but saying hi, meeting for 30 minutes, meeting for 20 minutes is critical to doing so. I'd say the other thing is ask the same questions to every single person. And the reason behind that is because then you can compare responses. Otherwise, it's jokingly say it's going to feel like an interview, but it's just so that I, I make sure that I, I don't miss um, the important points. And so I ask the same question to every single person. And I ask them, tell me about themselves. I just want to learn how they ended up at the organization and what their roles and responsibilities are. Um, I ask for their input in, you know, what are the opportunities that you're seeing? What are the things that worry you? And then what are the landmines that I should avoid? And it's, it's a conversation still, but, it, but those are the points that I always try to ask when I'm meeting with someone for the first time. So you set out ahead of time some guideposts in terms of, I think I want to like move us around these basic ideas. And then I'm going to do this over and over again with different groups of people and try to synthesize out from this a sense of the existing structure of how systems work in my team. Is that about right? That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Huh. How did you learn how to do that? I know we've shared some of the training and then we've diverged wildly in some of the other trainings that, that each of us have been through. But I guess I'd ask that question, like, what's your advice to people that want to get better at this? Are there things they should read? Are there ideas they should study? Should they start practicing this in their own teams? How does that work? I think two ways. One was sort of intuitively, we learn to do this as in our own training as emergency physicians, right? Someone complains with chest pressure. We do ask the same questions pretty much, right? As we're trying to exclude oh, yeah. differential yeah. diagnoses, right? And that, if you look on a grand scale, is then you're, you're actually comparing patients to other patients that you've seen, and you're trying to synthesize, does this patient with chest pain, do they sound more like an aortic dissection, a tear in the aorta, or is it a heart attack? And by asking the same questions, you're, you're developing that knowledge and that, and that data bank that you can recall later on. Now, of course, you want to make sure that you're not, you don't develop any anchor bias, but you know, that, that's part of the art of medicine, but inherently we are doing the same thing. I'd say the other book that was really helpful was the, uh, the first 90 days. And that, that was just great because it provided a framework of thinking of things. I joke that's sort of what like business school is, right? Is that 80% of it is pretty intuitive, but now you start developing a shared language you develop a system or framework of thinking of things and diagnosing problems, clinical operations, as it were. But those two areas of training and, and reading has provided that framework of, yeah, you know, this is pretty helpful in, in being able to compare answers, regardless of what stakeholder we're talking about, or role group we're talking about. I hadn't made that connection before between the way that we structure our questions when we're trying to run through differential diagnostic patterns to the way that we structure our questions when we're identifying, uh, we're sort of um, a sonar, like we're sounding out to try to figure out like what the structure is that we're, that we're existing within. It's a really interesting parallel. Okay. I, I'm going to ask this question. I'm sort of making it up as I go along and I'm not sure this is going to lead us anywhere. So it, if it doesn't, that's fine. If it does, awesome. Which is yeah. as you think about your, your role as leading clinical operations, and you think about what we've been building in the emergency mind project 
which is individual and team-based tools for performance under pressure. What should we build next? What do you need? What do clinical operations folks need to understand more about how they and their teams function? I'd say a big area that has, has been at least interesting me is this behavioral economics component to it, right? How, how do we think and, and how do people respond to different incentives or the way we think about setting up systems so that, as we say, it's so it's easy to do the right thing. For the longest time, many people just assumed that if you have a process, that everyone's going to follow the process, right? Even when we talk about disaster medicine, right? For the longest time, it was like, we thought that people are going to line up in single file. And certainly disaster after disaster has shown that you need to be realistic in the way people are thinking. And so as we prepare individually or, or systems, what we're asking is make sure whatever process we're developing, we're realistic in how we think we know how um, humans will respond. So thinking about, in that sense, nudges from the behavioral economics point of view and paths of least resistance and paths of friction to sort of like, how can we better use, how can we better design systems that allow good choices to be made by individuals at the point of contact under pressure? Is that about right? Yeah. And honestly, like, I sort of think of it as like in the operations world, I also look at like, what's the risk? What's the risk of not doing said action? And if the risk is nothing, then you, you first start asking like, why do we even have this process? Right. But, you know, in medicine, we talk about risk, right. We talk about like, there's a possibility that there's this diagnosis. We got this test. And so the risk of you having this diagnosis is low, but nothing's ever zero. And in a similar way, like as we think about processes and developing processes, yes, there's engineering tools and, and process improvements. We talk about like Six Sigma and, and lean processes and trying to decrease the failure rate. But it's also a capacity issue, right? There's not enough resources for us to just be like, we're going to make sure everything's 100% proof. And so the way I think about it is, what's my toolbox? How important is the issue? And it may just be solved by an education, right? An education email or, or, or link, and it's for general awareness, right? And like, how many emails do we get on a day-to-day basis being like, hey, FYI? But if we really want that process to be followed and done, then you need to develop this system so that it's default choice as we talk about things and potentially nudges to accomplish the act that we're asking people to do on a day-to-day basis, on on a minute to minute basis. But your point is that we don't have enough resources to do choice architecture design for every single possible thing. And even if we did, it wouldn't work because the emergency department and emergencies in general are constantly changing and supplying us with a never-ending list of choices we never thought we'd have to make in the first place, let alone make on a regular basis. So there's this double system of figuring out which choices are critically important that have risks of failure that that are serious, and then devoting properly tuned choice architecture structures to those questions and letting the other ones be what they will. That's amazing. I think we just combined stoic philosophy with the book nudge and behavioral economics and like, (laughs) in like one fell swoop. That's incredible. (laughs) Super cool. Dropping nuggets (laughs) of of knowledge here and there. Yeah. (laughs) Super interesting, man. 
Brian, this has been amazing. I, I have just genuinely love talking with you about this. And I, I hope I can convince you to come back on for round two and talk more about, you know, this systems design in and out of pressure. Before we wrap all this up though, I'm wondering if you want to leave folks with a challenge, something that you want them to start doing or do differently on their next shift and their next day after they listen to this. Yeah. The biggest thing is establish those relationships, say hello to people. The time that you're asking folks to do things for the first time, or that is it's an emergency and you're under pressure, it's best to like to be able to say someone's name or ask someone for help by their name. It goes a long way, especially when we're we're talking about interactions that um, that are continuous, right? That we that we work with and with COVID and being virtual makes it more complicated. But I think in that world, it's even more important to do so, right? Because it may be difficult now to just bump into someone in, in a hallway to, to catch up. Um, it was, so we have to be mindful of establishing those relationships and maintaining those relationships and investing in that is going to pay dividends. Dude, thank you so much. This has been awesome. It's honestly, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Dan. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.